Welcome, everybody, to Thoughts and Prayers. Um, we have a special guest today, a returning guest. Um, uh, he was too good the first time, so we had to bring him back. It's uh, it's David M., uh, a.k.a. Comrade Doom. <laughs> yes. Hey. Hey, guys. Yeah, welcome. And uh, I guess um, we had you back on um not only just because we generally enjoy your company but also because you have a new uh piece out um in compact uh so yeah you were you were just telling us before we started recording about a little history of the publication so yeah (laughs) i'm definitely curious to hear more about that yeah so compact was all right, so my belief is, this is my understanding, actually. Compact was started, I think it's like a year old now, um, and it was started by this, it's this, it's the premier, I want to say, the premier red-brown alliance uh, journal right now, because it was founded by tradcaths and Marxists coming together to publish um, this magazine together. So you can find things that are like, you know, we should revoke Vatican II to uh, we need to socialize the means of production, you know? So it's that sort of contradictory, I don't know if it's contradictory, but that ferment um, where it's coming from. I guess you could say political homelessness or whatever. Um and uh, yeah, so I was uh, mutuals on Twitter for a while with uh, a couple of the editors there and had been researching AIDS and uh, had been wanting to write something long form about it for a while. And they just seemed like uh, the place to go. Uh, so, yeah, and they, they were great to work with. Um, yeah. Interesting. Great yeah. So you kind of pitched the idea to them and they said, go for it. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, so that's, um, they were, yeah, I mean, do you guys know Jeff Schollenberger? He, yeah, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah uh, outsider I, theory. Mm-hmm, outsider theory, and he's the, uh, I actually not sure what his official title is, but he's an editor there. And anyway, he and I had been uh, following each other uh, for a while on Twitter, uh, way back into 2021 on COVID. Um, and yeah, he worked with me on this piece uh which i thought yeah i really like working with him um so yeah i mean the idea of the piece so if you go back to covid i remember a big talking point like do you guys know who greg gonzalez is uh he's this uh act up guy he's former act up and uh during covid he was like such a militant for um, just like closing down schools, you know, just all the public health measures. And this goes back even, this is even before I met Jeff, like way back 2020, the first time I actually on Twitter started to meet like COVID dissidents when I was still like a basically DSA guy, but aligned, but starting to have doubts about COVID. 
there was this argument I got in with Greg Gonzalez. It was kind of a pylon. <laughs> Maybe argument is too dignified. But a lot of people just started attacking Greg Gonzalez because, oh, this is what happened. Do you remember Jackman published in summer, late summer 2020, they published an interview with Martin Koldorf. Martin Koldorf at the time uh, was at Harvard. He's this epidemiologist who was against um, against lockdowns. Uh, he was one of the great Barrington guys, right? You know. Exactly. Yeah. One of the main three authors, him, Jay Bhattacharya and Sunetra Gupta. Um, and just this is like even before the great Barrington came out, he published an interview with Jacobin and it was like, whoa, because there was this like before things gets fixed, you know, things are, you know, you don't, don't know exactly what's going to be a left wing versus a right wing position. And it's, it seemed like Jacobin publishing an interview with him meant, oh, maybe the left is actually going to turn on COVID madness. It's impossible. Uh, but then this Greg character, Greg with three G's, um, was just absolutely savaging the piece. I mean, without any, you know, substantial criticisms of any kind just mm. you want people to die for trump whatever trump <laughs> trump aligned trump ep- epidemiology it's interesting that that Koldorf piece was in jacobin right yeah right and so so right so there was a window and this is i mean this is just pure speculation so don't quote me on this mm-hmm. but i always have this idea that you know Bhaskar sankara the editor of jacobin i think he actually agreed with us more than he let on publicly. I don't, I have no way from that. That's not based on any inside information. That's just my, <laughs> my perception. Like reading between the lines. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think, I think he was actually, but you know, he started this thing and there's no going back. So he's, you know, yeah. um, and the left just became so totally uh, behind lockdowns. Um, oh, but so, so anyway, so Greg shows up on the scene in like late summer, 2020, as this COVID enforcer, like left wing, like a shock troop, right? Just enforcing the narrative on COVID from the left. Like you want people to die if you're not in favor of this, et cetera, et cetera. And then looking into it some more, I just remember like getting pissed off at, at Greg. A lot of us were at this time. And that's how I met like uh, my friend Genev. I met from this pylon on Greg and a bunch of people <laughs> that I would, that would actually go on to like meet in person from this Twitter pylon. Um, Greg is a former act up activist, like deeply involved in, in AIDS activism in the nineties. And at the time, a lot of people response to that was like, well, isn't that hypocritical because AIDS activism, the point was to not shame people, right? Like to remove the stigma, but now you're here stigmatizing COVID in this way. And so that, that was sort of the standard response to that. Um, and I sort of believe that for a while, but looking into it more, I think the the legacy of AIDS activism is actually a lot more complicated than that. Um, and I think AIDS activism often was on the same side as the establishment. And so you can see Greg's career as actually more one of continuity than any kind of like betraying his radical past. I think maybe there's some of that, but there's also just a lot of continuity and sort of this radical activism became so, uh, why did this this radical activism become so easily co-opted 
by mm-hmm. the establishment. So that was sort of the the question. Yeah, and yeah. I knew Greg Gonzalez only from COVID. So I, I had no idea about the, his history of AIDS activism. I actually, I assume he's gay or no? Yeah, he's gay. Okay, mm-hmm. so I didn't even know that. I just thought he was like some Twitter, like COVID libtard, you know? Oh, he. I mean, um, he definitely is that. But yeah, yeah. yeah. But, he's, <laughs> <laughs> but he's also... I mean, yeah. and then one thing it came up, it came up like a, was it last summer when there was the whole monkeypox thing? Because he mm-hmm. was like, well, no, we can't stigmatize meth orgy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we did a lot of, we were, we were, that was, those were some early TNP episodes were all about that thing. That, the that monkey thing or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Like how we no, were like, we have to, we have to mask toddlers, but like we, we, we must protect the gay men's piss orgies. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Where? Yeah. Yeah. And that, well, at one point Greg tweeted like okay. about gay men need to organize fuck pots. <laughs> Do you remember that? I think he like actually <laughs> tweeted that like, we need to like organize, we need to like self care. So everything is like an act. There's an activist solution to everything. You know, it's like the meth orgies go on, but they need to go on in like a woke NGOified mm-hmm. way, you know, which is like the whole appeal of a gay orgy is it's like a transgression against all those rules. So it's like this contradiction if he's trying to do an NGOified gay orgy, but that like defeats <laughs> the whole point of gay orgy, right? It's supposed to just be a breaking of all. I'm sure you could figure out a way to work in some plexiglass and social distancing. <laughs> and <whatever. laughs> it, was right. like early, it was like the early um, COVID. I think it was real. I actually never really looked it up, but the how to have sex COVID safe. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yep. There was San Francisco. Yeah. 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 So, right. So, yeah. Right. I those and that was like a big um that was a big thing well i think it's a i mean that was the whole contradiction of yeah places like san francisco which you know has been for since it's really since it's founding it's supposed to be like the cutting edge of the sexual revolution right um but now the culture is just so obsessed with rules right um and so how how did that how did that happen i mean i guess that's (laughs) Yeah, that's sort of sort of what I'm trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think I mean I don't know. I'm 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 going off the cuff here. So this isn't like a well formulated theory, but um, I think that the impulse. I think the left has an impulse to protect people, mm-hmm. uh, or something like that. <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> But that impulse can, um, when carried to its logical conclusion, lead to some pretty authoritarian uh, measures. And That's I think very- it, it's was it's not even used like in good faith necessarily. It's just like this impulse that leftists have that people in power can essentially like manipulate, use to manipulate them into doing, you know, saying staying home is saving lives or whatever. And then if you're a good leftist, you'll oblige that, you know? I mean, even I think in like, you know, uh, I mean, I don't know a lot about Marxism, but even in like, you know, and I'm sure you know more than I do, David, but even following Marxism to its like radical end, it's kind of like the government is 
all powerful and everyone is the government sort of isn't that true essentially <laughs> like the pe- the people like it, it's a it's a very rule based system ultimately it's not really a a free I don't know. Well, technically, I think Marx envisioned communism as a, a stateless society, like oh, a okay. classless stateless society. But as far as any like existing regime that calls itself Marxist or whatever, yeah, it's end up being just a lot of centralized authority and rules and shit. Yeah, which I mean, this might be controversial, but I think in some ways, like Marxist regimes in the 20th century, they were incredibly brutal. But they actually did create a lot of growth, like a lot of really poor backwards countries were raised into. So communism ultimately turned out to be like a stepping stone between feudalism and capitalism rather than a stage beyond capitalism. Um, I think that's interesting. I think that's what shows, but so we, we were trying, we were attempting to draw some sort of where this impulse of the most liberal places like San Francisco and New York, where, where, how they became kind of the most, um, cause I think you see it in a lot of aspects of, of like the left, right? Like, I mean, they have, I feel like to some extent, the, the, the more overreaching parts of me too, were like, let's regulate the entire. Yeah. 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 Right? yeah. Well, I think there's an impulse no. on the left to politicize more and more sort of daily aspects or basic aspects of, of daily life such that um, which I think is this might be where it lines up with pharma. If you see everyday life, like the everyday sort of uh, tragedy of being human, you know, you know, being born to suffer and die. If you see that as a political issue, then that you can see how that might line up with pharma promising technologies that sort of surpass uh, suffering and whatnot. And so I think that's I think that's where AIDS becomes important because. As far as I know, I could be wrong, but as far as like a rhetoric of the government allowed people to die, I think that was really, that really came out of act up of sort of blaming like a genocide of inaction um, as if the government could somehow cure AIDS with the snap of the finger, you know, Um, which is still, I mean, that's still the way the conventional wisdom around AIDS is, is often said that, you know, Reagan ignored it for years and just let people die. And I mean, I'm not saying there's zero truth to that, but you kind of have to examine the assumptions there. Like the government is not so all powerful that it can just decide to prevent diseases. Right. Um, Some might argue that they even um, may have a hand in uh perpetuating diseases but that, that maybe well uh, yeah yeah, yeah. That, that, that was uh well yeah that was well at the end of the uh interview with Pujols I just did he asked me that about the, <laughs> the origins and I I to be honest I have not looked into that mm-hmm. at all I mean with COVID to be honest I was not into the lab leak theory for for quite a while and but then mm-hmm. it, it turns out it's true I mean I don't think it's a bioweapon <laughs> but it it seems almost certain that it was a a leak from a so family. you're saying you do not um, support the 
the raccoon dog theory, David? Oh, of COVID. <laughs> no, I think COVID has to be from. I mean, it's. I I I thought it was crazy. I mean, there are these all these articles from like right before the uh, uh, from year well from a few years before about warnings of like COVID might leak out from this center in Wuhan. So it, it just seems mm-hmm. like it's. Uh, like no, I mean I'm totally true. So it sounds like your take, um, in general, both on COVID and AIDS, is not necessarily conspiratorial in nature. No, I don't. I'm not the most. I'm probably one of the le- less conspiratorial mm-hmm. guests on this pod. Yeah, which I, I, I think is. Inter- I mean, I will say, like at this point, I'm pretty much black pilled and like mm. am pretty conspiratorial minded. But I yeah. like hearing perspectives like yours, which are kind of criticisms of some of the same things, but from a slightly different angle, which I think is super valuable and um maybe even has sort of more of a more mainstream appeal to it for that reason i mean i so this is a difficult topic for me (laughs) to Mm -hmm. approach and I'm, i'm glad that you're um you know i'm glad that you're we're starting with you because we do want to have more kind of we want to do like a few episodes on aids so i'm glad we're starting with you because i feel like i can I have something to latch on to uh, with you, but um, I feel like one thing that was very powerful about the like gay genocide narrative mm. is it's like was kind of like a framing. It you know it's it's very. I have some gay friends who are in their sixties, mm. um, and so it's a very like. I think something that leftism encourages is this kind of like backward looking, you know, look at like what your people survived or something. Mm, Sure. Um, And that's like kind of like a foundational gay American myth. And I think a lot of people draw like, you know, AIDS up through like Stonewall AIDS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like, and then it was like integration, and then it and then, was like um, gay marriage. Gay marriage, then, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's like, yeah, like AIDS was the tragedy that we overcome, right. and then gay marriage is like our heavenly reward. <laughs> we get to right. And, 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 <laughs> and then the, in between that was sort of like assimilation, right? Like the '90s was sort of like yeah, the, like the so it's it's weird because it kind of turns being gay, which it isn't. It, it tries to tie it to these like eth- it tries to tie its journey to these like ethnic groups because that's kind of like the ethnic group, right? Like journey in America, right? <laughs> it's like mm. some sort of tragedy, and then there's yeah. people come, and then they assimilate, and then they get rights, and it kind of tries to make being gay into that, but it's kind of fundamentally. Different no, no, it's not the same thing. I mean, ACT UP, uh, yeah, I mean, ACT UP was explicit with the with the pink triangle. Uh, so it's it's drawing, yeah, this idea that this is the equivalent of Nazi persecution. Um, and yeah, I mean, and then it's, it's so awkward. I mean, I get sensitive about this, talking about this with uh, really straight people. But there is some, tr- I mean... AIDS was a lifestyle disease, right? I mean, it was a disease people got from, for the most part, from uh, 
really sort of reckless behaviors, right? And that's not, I mean, there's this idea you have to have, you know, perfect victim worthy versus unworthy victims. And it's a, it doesn't mean you can't like that they deserved it or anything like that. But it, I mean, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's like the same, like, like, if you're a motorcycle rider, you have a higher risk of like, right, getting a head injury or something. I mean, it's just like, that's just right, fact, you know, yeah. And people, so don't, people don't do it for I mean, like, I guess like people don't talk about for I mean, maybe they should. And that's a that this is a valid argument. They should but people don't talk about like, diabetes the same way or even like a lot of different types of cancer um which are you know lifestyle based like people eating crap and smoking and <laughs> drinking sure, you know but i mean they should i, I mean uh, people should live healthy right i mean yeah no but a lot of disease i guess i would argue like a lot of diseases yeah. are lifestyle diseases in the sense sure no i think there's some truth to that and it's like you compare it's interesting to compare like aids to I'm doing some research on, on the opioid epidemic now. And it's yeah. like, like neither of those is actually morally neutral. I mean, getting addicted to opioids, there is some level of agency there that, that happens. Um, not that people aren't manipulated into it and whatnot, but it's like, who are you allowed to have sympathy with in these victim yeah, groups? That's kind, of, that's kind of the point I'm making. It's like, it would be, unfathomable unfathomable to a lot of Americans to look at someone with type two diabetes and say, you know, you made a lot of really poor choices throughout your life. I don't think that's true on our on our side of Twitter. Plenty of people. Would. Yeah, I was gonna <laughs> say. Yeah. 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 Do, people, people do, do more noise. Yeah, people do like, definitely say that with smoking, though. Like, oh, yeah. you smoked and you got lung cancer. Boo hoo. Yeah, or, you know, I mean. No, yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally, yeah. totally, totally. Well, I mean, but this, yeah, it's that's very rigid. I, I just, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I mean, it's just, I, I mean, there is some truth to. There are things you like. I mean, I came of age before prep and uh, was still able to live a pretty uh, fun life in my youth, uh, and you can. It's not that hard to stay negative, right? To avoid. Um, if you know what you're doing. So there are things you can do. I mean, and it's it's very disempowering to say that there's nothing you can do and you're going to die, you know? Like to, to say that you don't have any agency over getting these these diseases or whatever or over your own health is actually very, uh, I don't know, that's a pretty dreary way of looking at it. Well, I never, I mean, I guess I never, I came of age, we're, we're pretty much the same age. I came of age before prep too. And I, I never felt like I was being told I couldn't do anything about it. In fact, I was being told, um, you know, uh, it would be my fault if I got HIV. Like that was kind of like the constant message I got. Um, from other gay people or from just society? Yeah, and from other gay people and like society and like my pa- my parents directly said that. That was the first thing they said when I came out. Um if they, they said the like, first thing they said was if you get HIV, it's your fault. Wow. Well, they said like you're gonna get HIV and die. That was like one of like oh. that was like the initial conversation. Um, they've come around since then, but I never. Fe- I always felt like that it w- there was a kind of like it, it would be your fault. But the truth is, is even though I was very socialized in this, you know, in a very conservative place that looked at that looked at it like that, the the lived reality of being young and uh, having sex is, is complicated, you know, like you don't always make the right choices and 
lots of alcohol and drugs and things like that <laughs> can be sure. involved. Sure, sure, sure. And, uh, and people, you know, it's the reason we have teen pregnancy and shit like that. And I mean, yeah, to a certain extent, I mean, I don't have a problem. I, I've, I've been on this pot a ton, like telling gay men that they need to like, uh, be less promiscuous. So I say that all the time. I tweet that all the time. <laughs> it's why mm. I get called, I get called homophobic all the time for saying things like that. So I'm not I'm not against it. I guess I'm just trying to like insert a little bit of an empathy piece or whatever. Well, less promiscuous by what standards though? You know, because there's 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 a lot there's a huge range between like married and monogamous and going to chemsex parties. You know. So maybe gays can still be pretty promiscuous by like straight people standards. And that's fine. <laughs> but there's still like an abyss. You shouldn't like, there's no healthy way to have meth orgies. Right. I mean, as someone who's done both as someone who's been in a monogamous relationship for nine years and went to meth orgies when I was a teenager and in my early twenties, I can certainly say which one I think is uh, more morally acceptable in my right. mind. And, and, and <laughs> what about, to be honest, I mean, I, I have no, not been to a meth orgy, nor did yeah. I live in the 70s or 80s. But my understanding is that like the meth orgies of today pale in comparison to like what was going on in the 70s and 80s. Well, that's yeah, that's what you hear. And I wonder. That's true. I was, yeah. That is absolutely yeah. true. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I will say meth is a hell of a drug. Like you can, you will, you can have sex for 12 hours. It's an insane mm. thing to even say, but it's possible. <laughs> like you can, yeah, you yeah. can get, you can get fucked in the ass for 12 hours. Um, I've never, no other drug has ever seemed, has ever made me feel like that was possible, but meth certainly did. So it's a scary, dangerous, bad very evil drug and people choose to do it. David, I agree. <laughs> they make a, they, they have some agency in that choice, knowing that, that it can do that to them. Um, but no, compared to what was happening in the seventies and eighties from everything I've read, those are pretty tame tea parties. So. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, um, it, it's a very interesting piece that you wrote and, happy to discuss any aspects of it that you would like. But one thing that I thought of um, was just, you know, it kind of, I guess, seems to draw some parallels between AIDS and COVID and kind of the, the path um, mm. from mm. one to the other. So I don't know if you... How do yeah. you say about that? Well, um, so yeah, the, the nugget of it was looking into... So Larry Kramer, who's an author, um, he wrote a novel called Faggots, which I haven't read, um, <laughs> uh, which came out in like the 70s. And it's like, Faggots, I guess, is, is just filled with like these crazy descriptions of gay sex. Um, and it's like showing before AIDS... Then in the 80s, um, he was doing all this uh, rabble rousing about this new disease um, and talking it up, trying to get more and more attention to it. Um, and I became aware of him because I became aware of him. This was like way back. Uh, I think this might have been 2020 even. 
um, when I discovered his open letter to Anthony Fauci um, that was published. <laughs> it was published in the Village Voice and also there are two different versions, the Village Voice and the San Francisco Examiner. And when I first read it, the thing that strikes you most about it is just how angry he is, right? How pissed off he is at Fauci. And so it was sort of gratifying just to see someone insulting Fauci. Um, so I remember sharing it on Twitter when I first read it and just being like, ha, this is awesome. Fauci's getting blasted. Um, but then I discovered there was actually a lot more to that story because Kramer and Fauci were actually good friends. And apparently, um, yeah, apparently he would denounce him and then say afterwards, oh, I didn't really mean it. Blah, blah, blah. When Kramer <laughs> died, like last year, was it last year or two years ago, um, Fauci spoke about how close they were and on and on. So it, it, it was, uh, yeah. So, so from there, you had to investigate why can they assume, but then, I mean, I guess leftists, someone like Kramer assumes this incredibly oppositional rhetoric of just denunciation. And then be on the same side as who they're denouncing, right? And so I saw that as sort of the germ of this sort of fusion of radical leftists and the establishment. And I think you can sort of trace that back to the Kramer. Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, they're playing a role. I mean, whether they know it or not, right, they're kind of almost like yeah they're creating this um somewhat artificial demand for action on the Mm -hmm. part of the government or and pharmaceutical companies what's that uh professional wrestling term um where it's like it's the 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 pretend uh, oh like kfab or whatever yeah yeah yeah, yeah, that's it yeah 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 Yeah. so yeah it was like (laughs) a professional wrestling uh type relationship um that developed uh from there and and so you wonder like uh and so then gonzalez was sort of secondary to the piece but then he really fit into that too i mean just starting out like you go back to the 90s um and you see him as this act up um speaker um yeah demanding whatever different kinds of research different things from the establishment and the establishment ultimately finds people like gonzalves and kramer really useful right so why is that um that's sort of the question and i think the answer is that the way power works now is very um I don't want to sound sexist at all, but it's very, uh, it's not like a patriot. Power is no longer really patriarchal, right? It's not just this man who shows up and tells you what to do. It uh, depends on appealing to your emotions, right? Emotional Mm -hmm. manipulation and so much. And that is what leftists specialize in, right? Leftists are professional, powerless people, right? Le- activists, anyway. Let's say leftist, left-wing activists. Their specialty is the performance of powerlessness, right? And that ultimately becomes really useful for powerful institutions. 
who can't just say, you know, we want you to die. Um, so take our product, you know, mm-hmm. we want to mutilate kids. No, we want to protect trans kids, you know, or with opioids. We don't want uh, to just like kill hundreds of thousands of people to make money. No, we want to end pain. We're doing right. this out of empathy for those with chronic pain pain you know and so yeah so i think you see this playing out everywhere uh you know if you get the stunted the powerless making this appeal uh but it's been a particularly successful tactic with uh the pharmaceutical industry mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you kind of touched on it um a little bit but definitely one of the parallels that I see between AIDS and COVID is one, like you mentioned, um, it's a lot of the same players, um, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. Fauci, obviously. Um, and, uh, even like Robert Gallo Mm -hmm. was one of the first people to, I forget what his contribution was, but was he published the paper on the origin of it viral yeah but it was it, it was uh plagiarized he's he's kind of a fraud i mean uh-huh. yeah he, he, he plagiarized but yeah yeah and, and that's what i was gonna say too is that um in addition to having a bunch of the same players well you could have this sort of innocent explanation of well these are like the world's top like virology experts or whatever but at the same time you have a lot of the same criticisms being made of these figures mm-hmm. 30 mm-hmm. or however many 40 years earlier 40 years, during yeah. AIDS yeah. And, and that that start to crop up again during COVID. Which in, in itself is so depressing because it's just such that Fauci had played the same. So he the role he had. It was 1980, 1984, I believe, was both the year that it was announced that they found the um, origin of AIDS, that it was HIV, and the year that Fauci ascended to the position that he held up until last year. You know, so it's like our society is so frozen in its leadership class, um, which I don't know. I mean, now, like... I have this hope, not wishing death on anyone, but I do wonder, like, if this generation finally dies off, are we going to be able to uh, maybe examine some of these mm-hmm. things again? Because I think a lot of it is just reputation protection, um, as long as, you know, Fauci. I don't know if they're ever, ever going to die off. I mean, <laughs> Feinstein's just going to, like, AI her way into, like, like 106 or something. Well, like, yeah, I mean, what Fauci's in his 80s now. Gallo's in his 90s. So I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah. So but, but Gallo, but, yeah. yeah, we'll see what happens. I just feel like what the, the Feinstein thing is so scary to me because what I've realized is all these younger people have just uh, surrounded themselves to this like slightly animated corpse <laughs> and her like her like symbol, her like symbol of power mm-hmm. is giving them mm-hmm. an excuse to like sort of so i'm just scared that like there's like fauci and biden adherence and they're just sort of like you know yeah. gonna kind of keep, keep the corpse going i'm not optimistic about that either like even when you see like the young blood or whatever like aoc or something mm-hmm. like they're all still in my opinion establishment shells even if they're yeah kind of whatever kayfabing uh radical leftism or whatever right yeah 
But I mean, I do wonder though how much of just is this inertia of just like mm-hmm. old people protecting their reputations, and then mm-hmm. maybe maybe it'll change. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, yeah. So I think well, another parallel with with COVID, I think, was the relentless catastrophizing yes. that that was right, and that was often. That's- that's a part of your article I really liked as you pointed out that uh, I didn't mean to interrupt, but yeah. I liked that a lot because you pointed out how AIDS affected gay men and intravenous drug users. So the, you know, we should have been targeting them and uh, reassuring everyone else. Right. And similarly, COVID <laughs> affected the very elderly, right. some people with severe, you know, uh, like, I, I hesitate to use the word immunocompromised because they stretch right, yeah, so yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. You know I mean? Like people with like, like people yeah, who are like cancer or something. Yeah. Cancer. Yeah. Right, like people right. who are like going to therapy. Yes. They were very at risk. Um, but I liked that part of your article because it's true. It's like, there were these groups that were that for which COVID was a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead of just focusing on those groups, it was like, it was a universal. Everyone. It had to be turned into a universal catastrophe. Yeah. Right. Which they did with AIDS too to make it like, I guess because they thought it would make more people care or something. But I, it's a weird... It's well, weird you to have me to think about it from the... Pers- like just the interests of people who become either professional AIDS activists or professional, like whatever Fauci is, researchers, <laughs> the establishment. And there's... Epidemiologists? Is that what, the word you're looking for? What, what would you say? I said epidemiologist. Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, but I mean, Fauci is something beyond that. I mean, yeah, so so if relentless focus on the disease that is your money ticket kind of makes sense, like you have an interest that doesn't even, it doesn't serve the public and it doesn't necessarily even serve the people to whom the disease is a real risk, you know, or the people who even have the disease. Um, but the interest, so the interest of like building an industry around this disease can actually diverge pretty sharply from the interests of patients um and so i think i think we saw that uh but it was it was also interesting because they like protected like their special boutique identity groups right like um like you couldn't say like more people and i want to be clear like i'm 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 overweight i've talked about this in the pod i'm taking my ozempic i'm doing that i know a doesn't like it but it's (laughs) happening i've lost i've lost i've lost a lot of weight um i've lost like 30 pounds but anyway um this isn't an oprah special this is a (laughs) but i um that you couldn't say during covid to anyone um and i was saying this as someone who was overweight you couldn't say like oh one of the best things you could do is like lose some weight Mm -hmm. or like go for Mm -hmm. well like weren't allowed like like certain like really logical interventions like weren't allowed you know it was like so weird it was like I don't well, know. and then they, even like even for the elderly, I mean, isolation is really bad for your health, and right, it's awful. Yeah, and so I think yeah. I, th- I think a lot of people were actually just a lot of elderly people just died because of isolation, and you know, like if you they, a lot of, and I mean, like not to like take agency away, but I think you know if you look at the statistics of opioid deaths during the years of COVID, they like right. spiked dramatically. Yeah. Yeah, this way, yeah. Um, so 
No, I understand. I, I do agree with your point that like people have agency, et cetera. But I also think like lockdowns mm-hmm. severely affected people's mental health yeah, yeah. and that of course led to more drug use and that, so the lockdowns killed people too, is an argument I've used. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then I think um, there was, you know, there were like COVID activists. I mean, like Greg is an example or like the teachers unions are an example of like, mm-hmm. oh, you open oh, schools. Teachers are awful. Eric Fangled Ding or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so yeah, so people demanding closures and demanding and I, I think the rhetoric there was very similar to a lot of... They're, they're still doing it. You can still go to their pages on Twitter. Yeah. They're still like, there's still like two more weeks to slow the spread. Yeah, yeah, they're like, and hey, they're still doing it. I, I think another, this is so related to what we're talking about, but another dimension that's common between AIDS and COVID is that most people's experience of it was hyper-mediated. Like, yeah. Yeah, they didn't have any or very little like direct experience with, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. some, like people who had AIDS, like if you were a, a gay man or friends mm-hmm. with lots of gay men living in San Francisco or New York, maybe you did. But aside from out of that group, it was all just like you know, this media do yeah, yeah. on the news and everyone's right. going to die. And, you know, right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the big examples I like to give are. 1985 Life magazine had that mm-hmm. big cover story. Now no one is safe, which is that's a crazy thing to say. It was not <laughs> remotely true. It was not remotely true. And then 1987, Oprah had uh, said on her show, I think she said one in five people maybe we're gonna die. Yeah. I read that in your article. Shocking. One in five people were gonna die. Right. Of AIDS. And so it was a relentless campaign. Um, that terrified a lot of people, like talking to, if you talk to Gen, uh, Gen Xers, their memory of AIDS is usually, unless they're, you know, you know, gay men who lived in San Francisco, their memory of AIDS is going to be the campaign and, and being, being terrified, uh, because of this. So their memory is going to be the media campaign, not anything else. Um, and so it was, I mean, and the way that it became like this sort of, it wasn't as invasive as COVID. I mean, there's really no, you can't get more invasive than like forcing everyone to cover their face for two years. I mean, there's, so it wasn't quite to that level, but it did like change the way people had sex, for instance, of like condom awareness, everyone like wearing a condom and you've got to have safe sex. And, and so it was, it did encroach in very intimate ways um, in people's lives. But I think, I mean, so the media, I think the just the big difference is just the difference in media technology. I think the journalism around AIDS was just as irresponsible and just as scaremongering. But people still, you could turn the news off and on back then, right? Or pick it up and down. And now because of uh, social media, the news is like essentially part of our body, right? Like your yeah. phone is basically part of your body. So it becomes, it's like everything, every, every little aspect um, is. I think about it all the time. It's so bad for us. It really is awful for us. It's pretty bad. Yeah. yeah. And there is, it's all like the, it's all the whole technology is like that. You know, there's like these apps that will like send you a push notification every time a crime is committed within oh, a, a, you okay. know a yeah, yeah, five yeah. mile radius or whatever and stuff like that it's always just like hitting you in the face with like ways that you can 
you know, be harmed or whatever. Uh, right, yeah. right, right, right. Harm, be harmed or ways to show virtue, right? Uh-huh. And so AIDS became, you know, there were lots of virtue signaling opportunities. Diana touched the AIDS kids in Africa. <laughs> Who did? Princess Diana. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But in her... It's like one of her things. But in her early days, they say... I don't know. Actually, this is... For some reason, my dad, who's kind of based, he... <laughs> Hated Princess Diana. Maybe I should say that. Her, her unpopular opinion over here. A lot of people love her. But what's you know, this is contrary. He claimed that Princess Diana had a hairdresser fired for being gay during AIDS. Oh, she probably did. Do yeah. That. So then he was just like, he was like, yeah, uh, gay priding it up. My dad against <laughs> against against Princess Diana, um, but yeah, but then they turned around and yeah, they wanted to hug. But, but that's the thing. I mean, the the message was very incoherent because they were simultaneously saying you're all going to die of this disease, but then you shouldn't be afraid of people who have it. But actually, if everyone is going to die of this disease, it kind of makes sense to be afraid of the people who are carrying it, right? <laughs> like that actually just kind of follows. So it's sort of this incoherent message. You can understand sort of why, like. Uh, like, you know, this case of poor Ryan White, this boy who got um, HIV through uh, blood trend. He was a hemophiliac and he got HIV. Right. And then in Indiana, his school banned him from attending and it became like Michael Jackson, I think, hugged him or something. <laughs> Michael Jackson came to his. No, of course. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. uh, all right, we don't need to go there. But but so but so it would just like showed how like open minded you were if you were able to. uh be with an AIDS patient, you know, be with someone with AIDS. But at the same time, the same people who were like, oh, isn't this virtuous? We're also saying you're all going to die. Right. So it's like this, it's this weird, uh, incoherent message that ultimately creates a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of division. Well, you know, it's, yeah, it's interesting too, because I felt like the gay community reaction to COVID mm-hmm fascinated me because there was kind of a few reactions mm-hmm. obviously there was people who didn't give a fuck and they were still on grinder and fucking and all that um but there was also this like really like did you did you ever encounter gays over covid on instagram i'm not on instagram but over facebook i did yeah okay so there was this there was this huge uh following and they called themselves gays over covid which you would think might mean gays against lockdowns or whatever but actually it was gay guys posting doxing people who went on vacation and stuff and like Mm. there was this whole like winter of 2020 a bunch of gay guy you know they went to Puerto Vallarta or whatever like they always do mm-hmm. uh, the, the like rich ripped you know sure. that that that, sure. that echelon of gay man um and then like basically gays over COVID just spent like days just like posting all these pictures of guys with their like jobs and phone numbers and LinkedIn oh, and they were wow. they were like do you want these COVID carriers that went and killed wow. these yeah. or these poor Mexican resort workers down there with their, co- meanwhile, like, you know, the resorts were like, please come. Right. Like we want the gays back. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. People, I didn't know about people that, don't but it doesn't really surprise me. Yeah. I mean, I, I encountered plenty of gay people who just, were like that. Yeah. And that was some of the first, that was some of the big, that was some of my first red pilling moments was seeing that because like I was talking with like, 
gay friends and they were like, oh, well, I think what they're doing is great. And I'm like, what? I was like, that's crazy. I was like, why, why do you think that's great? They're getting people fired. And I was like, and then they would, they would like call the cops on uh, big like gay parties in LA and New York and stuff. Wow. And again, I had gay friends who were like, well, that's great. They're shutting down those awful gays and their parties. And I'm like, but I thought we didn't like the cops. Like last summer, everyone was, everyone was burning down the buildings yeah. and saying the cops are racist. And now we're, now we're calling the cops in to stop the, the gay raves or I, I was like, I don't understand. Like, they just, just want to be was, the cops. Right. I mean, it's just that they want to be the cops. Right. They want to abolish everyone, the police and replace and then become the police themselves <laughs> i mean yeah they they want us to call like uh, they want us to call the 911 but like a fat social worker comes up to like diffuse the to diffuse the situation or something or just yeah well okay i mean but let me ask you do you think gays were especially covid uh stupid uh especially that way more than other people or was it no i, don't. I, I think I don't. by and large think- they actually kind of rejected the lockdowns yeah, me too. I think yeah, I think gays over COVID was an anomaly. I think I think gay people more than other groups kind of were over it faster. Yeah. Um. I mean, they also kind of I don't know. That's my impression, but I'm I'm speaking anecdotally. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Anecdotally, same though. Like most of the people that I knew during COVID who were more like kind of going out and still doing stuff when everyone else was locking down. Like they were mostly gay guys from. Okay. Kind of remember. Okay. There's this video, this, these parties in the, in the town where I live, uh, gay video parties, um, which, you know, there's like a mainstream movie played and there's like a porn movie in the basement, that kind of thing. And um, for a while they were requiring, it's just at someone's house. So there's no, this isn't, required required but they were so they decided you had to show vaccine passport to go (laughs) to basically a gay sex party um and so i don't know i mean that like i can't yeah how does that make sense to someone i just don't understand me i guess maybe it wasn't necessarily like an ideological opposition if that makes sense so much as just like they wanted to keep doing stuff so it's like same if you can go to the sex party but you have to get vaccinated fine you know whatever i just want to go well and i mean I my friends have shown me i don't i don't have grinder for the record i'm not you know, <laughs> still doing my not my monogamy thing but my friends were showing me that um people put like all their jabs on there they're like yeah. three times and like they put like two 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 jabs and like a monkey to show they did like the monkey yeah the monkey right and well and i mean part of that so i sometimes wonder if gays one thing i try um in the article like the sort of like the 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 medicalization of everyday life and how in some ways i wonder i do wonder if gays were on the cutting edge of that with um prep and whatnot um well we certainly i mean we could certainly argue that um uh we can certainly whether gays are are in on it or not we can certainly argue that gender ideology and trans ideology uh is on the cutting edge of that because that's basically i mean Mm -hmm. that's lifelong yeah 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 yeah. life 
medicalization, a hundred percent. No, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Like you will have to see doctors, and it's it's kind of like cyborg. They actually literally, I mean, again, in my feminist studies degree that I paid two hundred fifty thousand dollars for, useful uh, thing in my life. It's made me very wealthy, but um, they like wrote about like uh, you know the cy- cyborg future, yeah, like, in a positive, a positive okay. way. That was like a that was like queer theory in like the 2010s. So I don't know if it's hard for me to say, if, I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm always defensive of gay men because sure. I am one, but I don't know if gay men themselves mm-hmm. are part of that. Certainly this broader queer thing, yeah. which I don't, is a more complicated right, thing. Right. I, I mean, and the certainly thing you could say though, because I was thinking about that um, because actually one interesting response I got to my piece was this uh, woman. I looked her up. She's like this. She's an editor at the American conservative. Um, Her name is Helen Andrews. And I don't want to say she's homophobic or anything, but she is a conservative Christian. And um, she was, she responded to my piece and was saying, yes, I think gay men were the pioneers of this, of this idea that to maintain your lifestyle, even if you're healthy, you need, to be medicalized. I was just thinking about that. You know, yeah, I, I get defensive sometimes when conservative Christians have opinions about gay men. You know, it's natural. Um, but thinking about it, I do just wonder about if really the target demographic was just women. Like post-war, there was like the boom in, um, you know, birth control. And then tranquilizers were a huge mm-hmm. thing through the 50s and 60s. And that's sort of why... Then all these regulations yeah. were put in. I was in the day. I wish I was back in that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, those housewives—they they passed him out like, yeah, valiant, yeah, yeah, get yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's much worse now than it, I mean, like oxycodone well, versus drugs, valium. I think you know. Yeah, the drugs are more severe right, now yeah, than yeah. all of them. Yeah, I'm still sad. I'll never get to try a quaalude. You know. Yeah. Like, you can't. I want to. I want to try the ones. Um, so, but yeah, but I think, so maybe the difference though with ACT UP, the thing that was distinct about it was making it this radical political demand. So wedding sort of like pharma activism, which it wasn't, I mean, an ACT UP was a complicated thing. It wasn't all just Larry Kramer. It was like a decentralized organization with a lot of different views, but I think ultimately it was co-opted by the medical establishment and pharma um in this way so yeah i i don't i mean i i I don't know a whole lot about it i was listening to um zach langley's podcast and they were talking a ton about uh larry kramer um who seems like kind of like a a really like controversial figure even amongst gays because wasn't yeah, he, he was. the one who he was the one who was saying um like wasn't he telling guys to stop fucking wasn't he like the only one well i don't know if he was the only one but yeah i mean his book faggots which came out before aids was was controversial because it portrayed gay men as sort of these it was a very bleak view of like gay party life but i'm like what was the other big one i'm sorry i'm like i feel like retarded right now it's larry kramer and then there was who was the head of uh there was one other like really famous one that just died 
Larry Kramer and Masha. He's really, really famous. I, don't, I forget. I don't know. Gay activist? Anyway, they, yeah, a gay activist who was like sort of like the opposite of Larry Kramer and like the, his, the way he like talked about HIV and AIDS and stuff. I don't know. Anyway, whatever. They were just saying that Larry Kramer was, I don't know where I'm going with this, but they were saying that Larry Kramer was controversial because he was one of the few, I guess, gay activists telling gay guys they should stop uh, having sex if they want to live. They should like just stop. That was something he said at one point, I guess. Hmm. Well, I think another thing about Larry Kramer was he was just so, uh, like the opening speech of ACT UP was so uh, insanely over the top with, uh, this is another parallel with COVID, about how we're all just getting onto the cattle cars to die. Like, look around you, you're all going to be dead. And like comparing this to the Nazi Holocaust and everyone you know is going to be dead in a few, like, I don't know, a year, a few years, you know? So this idea that um, HIV was, a death sentence and like imminent death. But the thing is, and this I think is interesting. Kramer was HIV positive, apparently since the late seventies and never got sick with AIDS. So his rhetoric, I think that's really irresponsible to be saying that everyone is going to be dead when you yourself have the disease and you're, or you Did have he the, take virus. the medication. I believe he took, he had been on some medication, but if he'd been positive since the 70s mm-hmm. and the medication. He lived, in, I mean, he lived an above average life. And, right. yeah, and it would have been like, yeah, like 10 years or however long yeah, yeah, yeah. before the medicine came out. Right. So, so the yeah. medicine came out in 87 and then, and he wasn't, but the, I think there is some evidence that, that attitude of you're all going to die was actually bad for people who had HIV because they were taking then AZT in these doses that ended up killing them. So it's, it's, that's a little bit like COVID in the ventilators, you know, how uh, mm-hmm. we were venting people to death in the early days. So if you say like this disease is so evil was they were giving it to people in the early COVID days and it was giving them like multi-system organ failure and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I think, I mean, you think because if you, it, there's the, right, this basic action bias, if you think this, this disease is so awful, you have to throw everything you possibly can at it. But medicine can also be uh, really awful. And uh, antiretrovirals work by stopping your cells from replicating you know it's like a very it's sort of a nuclear option um so yeah how many people died from taking azt because they thought they were going to die they were never going to die from aids well but they would just argue i mean like the people i guess like the fauci's and larry kramer and stuff would just say that uh, they were going to die anyway. So it's a, you know, last, like whatever, who cares? Like last ditch effort. But you're saying that that was a. Um, right. right. And, but doesn't that re- argument remind you a little bit of like the need to put teenagers on pu- puberty blockers? Cause they're, they're going to die. Like, like. Yeah. They're going to, they're going to die yeah. if we don't do, of course it's so similar and it's, you know, and it's, you know, this is probably even, this is less and less controversial. It's like, it's even like how useful is, is chemo mm-hmm. after a certain right. life. Right, right, right. You know, like, 
lot of evidence that, I mean, listen, if you're 45 and you, uh, <laughs> you know, I would probably do, and I would probably do anything to expand my life, but they're like, if you're 78, sure. you know, like is, <laughs> is chemo right. worth it? Like, but if it, yeah. it's like, yeah. If a disease can be portrayed as like certain death, that really opens the door to medical experimentation, right? Like you can just do like these, these trans kids are all going to kill themselves. So we have free reign to just like take out their intestines and rearrange them. That's what your your article pointed that out. I thought smartly that like, uh, you know, um, I hope it was your article. I read a few things, but anyway, I think your article pointed out that like, people were even against the double blind study. Oh yeah. Yeah. They were right. Yep. They were were so adamant that it's unethical um, to give, to have a placebo group. Right. 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 We have no idea what this does, (laughs) but we like that's it. Right. And you, you see that. Yeah. And that argument, like I've even seen that argument, I think with masks, that masks are, you can't mm-hmm. ethically do an RCT. That's why they mask. couldn't study it. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, but then, I mean, obviously that puts, you don't know that this is helpful at all if you haven't studied it. Um, so yeah. One, they also like, that was the other argument with masks. It's like, well, it can't hurt. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. Was- Which I don't think anyone would have said that with AZT. I mean, not. <laughs> no, <laughs> but sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, well, yeah, and that's another thing. Like, it's it's what does it matter to you? It can't mean that much to you. So just give in to this creeping authority. What's also like this new? There's this new um, with the trans thing today. Like, there's a new um, you know, like controversy. I guess about like I guess you can like um, you can. Uh, trans women can take some sort of medication to induce lactation or something. Oh God. Yeah. No. Yeah. Like people are really freaking out about that, but it's like, um, I'm kind of like, like some of this stuff, I'm like, why? Like what, like why even risk it? Like, you know what I mean? Like if, if it's, if it could possibly even be harmful to, you know, a baby, why would you, (laughs) you know, like why? Like, you know, it doesn't, it seems, it seems like pointless to do it. If it's like, like, it's like, it's interesting that the thing is like, well, let's do all the risk. It's worth it. But I'm like, maybe, I don't know. It seems like the opposite should be true. (laughs) Like, let's do less risk. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the lot, yeah. Well, because I think the underlying logic there is, uh, if you don't get total affirmation, you'll kill so they're trying, I mean, that's the thing that's so weird about the trans thing is they're simultaneously trying to claim that it's not a disease because they want to destigmatize it. But then they also want to claim that it's such a deadly disease that if you don't throw everything at it and like allow every medical experiment, they'll certainly die. So it's at once not a disease at all and it's terminal cancer, you know? So it doesn't, and yeah. It, it's, it, I think in both cases, it relies on exaggerating the risks of the illness, the disease, and minimizing the risks of the product that's being rolled out to address the disease. Right. 
Right, because we have, and this is where I can almost get kind of trad cath, right? Because we have no greater metaphysical authority than science, right? And so you have to put your faith in science. And yeah, the FDA is basically the representative of science on Earth. And so, yeah, you have to trust the science. And another parallel that I just kind of thought of now, I, I'm not, I can't remember if you mentioned it in your piece, but um, the kind of role of like asymptomatic illness mm. um, and like mm. how, you know, with AIDS, yeah. there's this latency period. It can be mm. like 10 years before right. you're test positive for the virus and when any type of disease mag- manifests. And then with COVID, it was like, you could actually just well, they do that with I mean, they do that with so many things like, you know, uh, people were posting this week about like HPV. It's like the the latency period is like 40 years or, or something, you know, right. like, it's like it's kind of like how like what are we even talking about here? You know, well, the implications of that, if you think about it, so it's like you're sick, not because you have symptoms, but because of a test. And if the test is interpreted um as a death sentence, that can really fuck up people's lives. I mean, I knew a man in um, San Francisco who tested positive. Like, I think he was, uh, this was like 10 years or more ago that I knew him. And at that time, he was probably in his 50s. And he tested positive way back in the 80s, I believe. Um, and said, like, his whole adult life, he assumed that he was just going to die, right? Based on a test. And so... There's a crazy, and then, I mean, some people were put on AZT without being sick, just from, just from the test. If you're basing sickness, not on the actual, you know, clinical presentation, uh, but a data point that gets into really, um, dubious territory. And then you can even go beyond that with, which is what prep does. And you're not even test positive, but you're still considered sick enough to take a to take this this med, you know, as a preventative. Yeah, I mean, it's they do it with so many things. I mean, there's so many tests that are, you know, like because I read this whole I did a deep dive on like herpes and how like they came up with those blood tests that can show that you have herpes antibodies, but you'll like never have an outbreak or any symptoms. And that's like the majority of people, mm-hmm. but they can still put you on, they can still put you on antiretrovirals because they freak you out so much, you know, with this, even if you have literally never, ever, ever have an outbreak, you know, like they can still convince you to take. Right. Uh, right, right. And it's, like, it's like, yeah, it's like the whole, it's, it's, they, they, it's just a way to sell more medicine, you know, like that people don't need. And it's a, yeah. And then it's, it's sort of the default assumption is like sick until proven healthy, right. Is, is become sort of like the organizing principle. Oh God. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, the, yeah, they manufacture, you know, they manu. I, I read the, the reason I bring up the herpes all the time is I read this slate article about how they basically manufactured this panic around this disease that for hundreds of years, wasn't even considered a disease. You know, it was just like, thought of like a cold. And then like in the eighties around the HIV thing, they manufactured this like whole scare around it. And 
they did it to sell these medis- medications, you know? And I feel like they just they just keep doing that over and over again with all these different things. Once you see it, it's hard right. to see it. Like, yeah. now all these 10-year-olds have to go get Gardasil <laughs> for HPV, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Before they've even had any sex of any kind, and they're they're getting it for a dis- a symptomless disease that might cause cancer in fifty years or something. You know what I mean? Like it's sure. like it's so far in the future. Anyway, I don't know. I don't know enough to like recommend against it. I'm just saying it's interest. It is interesting. Well, like, um, think- what's her name? Um, what the the Theranos lady, Elizabeth Holmes. Um, she was just sentenced, right? And everyone hates her now. And rightly so. I mean, she was a fraud and so on. But what her fraud could only become successful in a very particular culture, right? And that's our culture, right? Like the idea of uh, testing to discuss, like testing at home, like that this is something we all need to be doing, right? It's, 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 it's it's ter- she was trying to bring something that's already a bad trend right, right. but into into like uh even she wanted to make it even worse because like right. i i already like i already think it's really i don't think you should take any sort of medical tests at home personally like no i mean it's all like asymptomatic i mean the whole premise of theranos was ace i mean like the real fraud was that it would have been a good idea if it did work, right? Like, I mean, it was it was all fake, but even if it had worked, it would have been worse, I think, because it would have just incentivized... Um, God, people would have been freaking it out. Have, yeah, I mean, it's inc- like... Hypochondria to an extreme degree. Like, like, you can take... I've taken them before, you know, back in my, I guess, ho days, but, like, they have, like, at-home HIV tests, yeah. and I'm like, yeah. we tell we tell people this is a death sentence and then we let them take this test alone in their house. Right. Yeah, no, it's crazy. <laughs> Nobody else around. <laughs> like, right. You know, it's like, right. It's a bad idea. It's a, it's a, and then like, and then like we give people with Theranos, she wanted to give people the chance to find out they have like cancer and stuff, like just sitting in their living room. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's not a good idea. Right. No. Right. 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 Like, well, that's what all the tests are. The tests are like antibody or whatever. It's like they're testing for an immune response or whatever, but they're not. Yeah. Right. And so, so yeah, I mean, everyone hates Theranos now, just like everyone hates the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma. But I feel like the assumptions are still like reign supreme. Like this would be a good idea if it did work, you know, and it's allowing, so these, these sort of, um, you know, they could either be, I mean, in the scheme of things, Theranos was a pretty harmless little scandal. Didn't really hurt that many people, but then there are things like, you know, the trans thing or uh, Oxycontin that really destroy people's lives on a huge scale. Um, and, you know, sometimes there's some pushback, but we seem like we we just keep uh, the assumptions behind them still reign supreme of like these these this utopian vision of medicine that's going to uh, solve uh, the problem of being human once and for all. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like very fountain of youth. Like, there's that dis- there's that those despicable people. I hate them on Twitter. They're like always tech bros who are like 
doing all this weird stuff to extend their lives. Like the guy today who like uses his son's semen. Oh or my something. God. I don't even <laughs> But like, well, my whole point is like those people like are even weirder because I'm just like, I'm like, you kind of like, yeah. you're going to die. Right. 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 right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to die of something. Right. And you, and if you're lucky, you're going to die in relatively old age of some illness, probably. And that's okay. You know? Right. Like, you, need to get, you need to think about how that's okay rather than... If it doesn't seem okay to you, you need to, like, you know, go on a spiritual journey. But you don't... Yeah. Like, and it's like, and it was weird that's like, you know, people were talking about these, like, COVID numbers. They're like, one million people died of COVID. But I'm like what percentage of those a huge percentage um well let's not let's take out the people who were like just covid positive at their deaths when they were like hot in the head so that's like a bunch of people but then like a huge percentage of the people who did legitimately die of covid were probably over the average life expectancy in the u.s anyway so it's like i'm not saying it's not like sad for their families or something but i'm like if you die at 83 of covid a huge I mean, percentage were not just elderly, but in nursing homes. And like the lifespan of a nursing home resident is five months. So that's my yeah, point. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's like. Right. Yeah. With the overwhelming. Yeah. Right. And so if you, if you die at that age, even of something like COVID, I don't think that's a tragedy personally. Like, I think that that's. To me, that's fine. <laughs> that's a, that's a fine outcome for your life if you make it, you know, eight decades and you yeah get not. You have to die of something eventually. You have to die of something, and also, but I don't, it, does, it doesn't mean that I don't think that like you know we should have protect. Like I think we you know ironically in New York we did the opposite. Yeah. We sent all the COVID back into the nursing homes. But, like, it's not like I don't think we should do anything to preserve people's lives. Like, it's like, I don't think there should be nothing, but it shouldn't be the only thing we consider. That's weird. Like, the the only thing we think about Well, I think maybe we should have given people options if they wanted to. But I think, like, um, this is actually, maybe I'm too extreme here. But I actually, like, the Great Barrington Declaration was like, oh, we're still going to protect the vulnerable. But on some level, I think... When you're talking about people in nursing homes, you know, 80 plus, protecting them to go on living can often just mean like torturing them through medicine. Um, I don't know. I had a grandfather who had a very difficult dying that went on years and it was all like to protect him. But what is medicine doing at that point other than just like torturing the elderly? If you if you consider death the worst possible outcome to be avoided at all costs, uh, that can lead to some pretty barbaric things. And it seems like it did with COVID of, you know, not elderly people not getting to see their loved ones when they died and, and, and so on. Not even their spouses and stuff. I do want to be clear though. Like I'm very anti, like we should euthanize all the old people too. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I also don't want to go to that extreme where it's like, well, just you hit 80 and. Right. Bare life. Right. Like, so bare life becomes the only ideal. And I think that's, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of where we're headed. Like 
if it saves one life. And I don't want it. I mean, that was my feeling with COVID. I was like, well. Well, I will keep your Terry Shivo ass alive. (laughs) Yeah, I'll do the bright lights. I'll be like, he's so, we have to keep him. Jesus wants us to keep him. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting question. Like, I want to ask my my Catholic friends about that. Like, do you think life, because if you think life is sacred, does that mean prolonging life just as like a pure heartbeat into this comatose, you know, state or I don't know. I think most Catholics and, and I, I, I'm, I'm identify as Catholic and I know you have a history with mm-hmm. it too, but like I, most Catholics would say that what they mean is not deliberately ending life. Um, and that's that's primarily the yeah. But is there okay? So then, I mean, the 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 grandfather who had that really difficult dying was Catholic, and I don't know. Like at certain points, he was just like, "Well, I have a gun. Kill me, kill me. I don't want to keep living." Um, and so, I think people have the right to ref- to refuse care. Like you know, like. Mm. I don't, I've, I've never known, a, I've never, I mean, I guess like I come from a very Catholic family and I've never known someone, like when someone makes a decision to go into hospice, people to be like, no, you can't, okay. you can't stop. Okay, okay. Like, I've never witnessed so they, that. Like, there's one, a distinction between hospice and, yeah, and uh, suicide. Hospice, so still, I mean, yeah. hospice, hospice is ceasing care, right? Sure, I mean, that's what you're doing. Yeah, yeah okay, yeah, yeah, yeah stopping all care so and i i've never witnessed when old people have died in my family when the when the person or if the person's no longer mentally there their you know their family decides to put them in hospice i've never witnessed any resistance to that so like the ceasing of care does not seem to go against catholic okay okay yeah okay that's a good distinction at least for my anecdotal observation i don't know what like the pope says about it but my understanding is that the ceasing of care doesn't count as (laughs) <laughs> yeah we'll leave, we'll have david back to talk about and maybe you can do some research david and write another amazing article for compact about uh the how the born this way movement is actually uh bad <laughs> that would really get, you should pitch that david that's a good one you should find an angle for that 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 maybe <laughs> framing it all framing it all as born this way is somehow detrimental well i don't know yeah I, I don't really I'm very conventional on that question, though, actually. Like, I think I'm pretty much uh, in agreement. I don't know, because I just, I, I can't, I can't come up with any other explanation in my own case. Okay, we're going to talk about it for a minute. I mean, I was like, I, I think it's probably my whole theory, and I've always yeah. felt this way, is that it's a confluence of factors, probably. And there's, like, probably some genetic factors, yeah. and there's probably some environmental factors and maybe like when you're in the womb like your mother goes through something and you get washed in estrogen yeah. or I don't know like I think there's probably like I think there's probably different ways too like I would I would probably say there's different ways to arrive at a homosexual identity or whatever so I don't know I I, I think it can be more complicated but certainly I don't think it's a choice um I don't believe that you know yeah, I mean, it just it just seems like such an overriding. It's something in my case. It feels like it's something that's way too um, fundamental to be chosen. Like it's way too, way beyond will. 
beyond my own will. That it, yeah, I don't think saying I don't think saying it's it's not born this way is saying that it's a choice. I, I think I think it can be like a complicated confluence of you know different things and yeah. You know, I mean, but the other thing is even before boys you know hit puberty, often I think it was true in my case. There are you know prepubescent signs that a child might be gay. Right? Yeah. They- Faggots and they like they like like hanging out with girls and yeah I, I mean boys I sounded gay gross, right I think other boys are gross yeah, yeah. no I, I I was like that too even when I was a kid before there was any hint of like sexual right it's not sex before it's sexual in any way yeah no it's something there's something I I was telling a earlier today that on Red Scare they had a geneticist on who said that they have identified like a cluster. It's like not one gene, of course, like a cluster of complex genes that most gay men have. Like most gay men have this cluster of genes. But then the problem is I think science is fake. So I can't. You have to hear the the punchline because I think it's. But some straight men also have this cluster of genes who don't end up having a gay identity, but they're the most promiscuous straight men. Oh, well, maybe, like maybe couldn't it be a response to promiscuity that it, this manifests itself? I don't know. I just thought that, really, I thought that was really funny that like the straight guys who have these weird cluster of genes, like don't, who don't end up having a homosexual identity end up being very promiscuous and highly sexual straight men. Okay. So, I know way more about male homosexuality than I do about female sexualities. I'm so sorry, ladies. But, um, Male homosexual behavior is pretty well documented (laughs) throughout history. It is true that a static identity, the idea of a static identity is fairly new, but the idea that there are men who are predominantly attracted to other men is pretty, that, that is not new. That, that is, all right. I think we should, uh, I think we should, yeah, we can we can talk more about. I could do more research and come back with more slut gene stuff next time. Yeah, thank you. Uh, this is David. He's at Comrade Doom One on Twitter. I think there's a one there. Um, and uh, we really like uh, his two uh, recent articles for Compact Mag. I'm sure he'll find a, a new angle, and we'll have him. We'll have him back soon. Maybe we'll have him back. Yeah, share it. Share it widely. All right. Thanks, David.